This is They Create World, Episode 19, The Great Video Game Crash, Part 1. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we get to go over... Something that we have discussed many times over the past few episodes, probably all the way back to the beginning. The great video game crash that occurred in the 80s, 83, 84. And also, we are going to cover, at the same time, the arcade crash that occurred a little bit before that, but was going on during the same time. That's right. A lot of people actually get these two events confused. They kind of assume that the video game industry was this kind of monolithic entity at that period of time, and that therefore the arcades crashing and the home crashing were all part of one gigantic event. But as we have discussed in one of our earlier episodes, they really were very distinct industries at that time. So the one crash didn't really have all that much to do with the other. And that's why they're really separate events, but because they're so interlinked in people's minds and because they were happening at the same time, it's still worth discussing them together. Now, my knowledge of the crash is pretty much hearsay. I was born a little bit before the crash, and I was probably like two, three, four years old when it happened. Right. We were Nintendo kids, NES kids. Right. So my knowledge is really not that great about it. I know it happened. I know that people have talked about it as sort of this mythological demon that can come about and stomp upon all of our dreams, hopes, and ideas. But I don't know a lot of the details. I know why the crash happened in the sense of, yes, you have too much product in the marketplace, but I think we as human beings really want to attribute something this major that really brought an entire industry to its knees, especially when it first started, and the arcade industry, which was huge at the time, and it also going down in flames around the same time. We want a villain. Who (laughs) is it out there that uh, caused all this to happen? And I think from the video game standpoint, a lot of things you always hear is, it's E.T. It was (laughs) E.T. Minds of E.T. cartridges off in some mystical landfill somewhere. It's E.T. It has to be Atari because they were the leaders. They're the big bad guys. They they destroyed this beautiful thing that we love and obviously them. But from a more logical standpoint, I know it's obviously not. It's really much more complex than that. Of course. And, you know, E.T. gets this bad rap, largely deservedly. There are some people today, it's kind of become cool to be like, well, E.T. wasn't that bad a game. E.T. was a pretty bad game. Now, was it the worst game ever made? Obviously not. So there's been this blowing out of proportion that E.T. is the absolute worst game ever created. And that's obviously not true. And I think some people are now too eager to defend it in the other direction by saying, well, E.T. really wasn't that bad. I enjoyed it as a kid. And, you know, maybe they did enjoy it as a kid. I mean, you and I, like, 
played the heck out of Star Voyager when we were kids. And that thing was hard. And it really wasn't that great a game. Yeah, you pretty much fly around in a spaceship and shoot your lasers. And when you were in the combat zone against the Morlock War Drivers, if I recall correctly, it wasn't a fair fight. Yeah, it was a Star Raiders clone, and it wasn't that great a game. But the point is, it captured our imagination as kids. And so we still loved it, despite whatever flaws it may have. And so, of course, there were kids that liked D.T. So some of these people that come out of the woodwork today and say, well, I like D.T., it's very good for you. Millions of your peers disagreed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it just wasn't that good a game. Of course, it was a rushed game. We won't go into that whole story. It's pretty well known. But the point is, E.T. couldn't sink an industry all by itself. Yes, they made about five million of them and only sold maybe a million and a half. Yes, there were a lot of returns. And that certainly was part of the problem Atari was experiencing in 1982. But they would have had problems if E.T. had never existed because market saturation was really the bigger problem. Though I find it interesting. Hmm. It's obvious when you look at the, this stuff in depth that E.T. was not the culprit. But every single person I have interviewed from that time period, when it comes time to talk about the crash, every single one of them without prompting brings up E.T. It's almost like the lie and the scapegoat has grown so big it's become its own mythology completely independent of the facts and it's what becomes the truth merely because enough people believe it's the truth sure but what i'm saying is the people that lived it they are all influenced of them by right all of them bring up et without prompting it is a symbol of the excesses of the period and it is useful as a symbol and as a case study but to say that the crash happened because Atari produced a bad Pac-Man port and because they produced a bad licensed version of E.T. And it was those two games that sank Atari and then Atari that sank the rest of the industry. That's just nonsense. You cannot reduce the crash to something that simplistic, especially since Pac-Man was actually quite a successful game. Now, it's a terrible port. Mm-hmm. But it was a very successful game. The confusion with Pac-Man comes because of some quotes that are out there. First of all, Pac-Man sold 7 million copies uh, in 1982. It was released in 1982, released at the very end of March. And it sold 7 million copies. That was phenomenal. There were a couple of cartridges, Space Invaders, for instance, asteroids, that had reached the three to five million mark by that stage. Seven million that Pac-Man sold was out of sight. It was hugely successful despite the fact that it had the flicker and all those other problems. The confusion comes because Stephen Kent in The Ultimate History of Video Games reported that Atari overproduced Pac-Man to such a degree that even though they sold seven million copies, they still had millions of copies in unsold inventory. I don't believe that's accurate. There aren't accurate production number figures for Atari from that time, at least that I know of. So you can't say for certain how many copies of Pac-Man were produced. But it seems that what happened is Kent interviewed Ray Kassar, who was the CEO of Atari at the time. And in their interview, which is directly quoted in Kent's book, 
Kassar says that they shipped 12 million Pac-Man cartridges. Mm-hmm. So it looks like what Kent did is the math. Kassar says they shipped 12 million, and sources of the time say they sold 7 million. So they must have overproduced the cartridge to the tune of 6 million units. Makes sense. One well, minus the other. I'm assuming Kassar just got the number wrong. It was 30 years later. Kassar was not a young man at the time of that interview. And I think that he probably just got the number wrong. They probably didn't produce 12 million. 12 million was more systems than existed at the time. The estimate was that Atari had about 10 million systems in circulation by that time. It seems very unlikely that they would have produced more games than they had systems because Atari was a very marketing-driven company. And the kind of basic assumption in marketing at that time was that if you had a really hot game, the attach rate to consoles would only be about like 40%. Like I think Space Invaders did about 40%, which means that 40% of VCS owners bought it. So even if you assumed the Pac-Man was going to be such a massive hit that it was going to become a system seller, you can't bank on it selling to more than 40 or 50% of your console base because that's that's just the way it works. So no marketing man worth his salt was going to authorize overproducing to that degree. And I talked to Michael Moon, and obviously he's just going off of memory too. He was the president of Atari's consumer division at the time. And I asked him, did you produce more Pac-Mans than you had systems? And he was like, no, I can't believe we would do that. He said, I would have had to authorize something like that, and I do not remember authorizing anything like that. So I don't think they produced 12 million. Now, they probably did produce a few more than they put into the marketplace, because another confusion is, at the time they were preparing to make Pac-Man the pack-in cartridge with the system to replace combat, which had been packaged with it since the beginning. So they did manufacture some Pac-Man inventory to put in new consoles. Okay, that makes sense. So even if, for the sake of argument, they produced more Pac-Man cartridges than there were systems already in the marketplace, if that's true, and I'm not convinced it is, it's more likely true because they were literally producing it for systems that hadn't entered the marketplace yet. Because it was going to be a bundled game. But even then, why would you make 2 million extra cartridges? You really anticipate to sell 2 million extra consoles just because of this game. Well, right. I mean, they were probably going to sell 2 or 3 million consoles, assuming that the market didn't fall off a cliff, just based on the rate of sale that they'd had in the past. For example, in 1982, it's estimated that Atari sold just over 5 million 2600 systems in the United States. So they were going to sell millions of new systems. It's not unbelievable in that sense that they could produce 2 million extra, but they would never produce at a rate where they would assume that every existing user of the system would also go out and buy the game because that has never, ever happened in the entire history of video games. And there was enough history of video games even in 1982 to understand that not everybody was going to buy it. I mean, Space Invaders was a humongous game. If there was ever going to be a game that everyone bought it, it was going to be Space Invaders when it was released in 1980. And that only sold to about 30 to 40 percent of current console owners at that time. So there's no way that they were thinking that Pac-Man was going to sell to every single person. Atari marketing gets a bad rap. But Atari marketing wasn't made up of 
brain dead idiots. I mean, you and I could run a marketing department well enough to be like, okay, let's see. We've never had a game sell more than 30 to 40% of existing users. I bet Pac-Man is not going to sell to 100% of existing users, no matter how popular it is. Yeah. So obviously we're not going to manufacture more than, let's say, 20%. And then we'll see how things go from there. Right. And the other thing is they didn't manufacture all at once. They had about a million in the channel when the game was released. So the game came out late March, early April. You didn't have exact street dates back then. So it was supposed to come out at the beginning of April, but some copies were starting to trickle out in March because some stores would put them on the shelves when they got them because you didn't have street dates and strict embargoes and all of that stuff that you have today. So they had about a million ready to go at launch. And then they kept producing them, obviously. And by summer, it sold very well at the start. Then by summer, sales really slowed down. And then in the holiday season, sales kind of picked up again. And that kind of makes sense. It sold well when it first came out. Yep. And then you have a lull because now it's been on the market and kind of everyone that really wanted it right away has already got it. And then, of course, in the holidays, even though video games are becoming a year-round business by this point, holidays are still your biggest sales season. So then at the holidays, it picks up again. So there's no way that once sales were kind of slowing in the summer that they were pumping out and pumping out and pumping out. I mean, you can't turn these things on a dime, but there's no way that they were going all the way up to 12 million cartridges at that point. I think Ray Kassar just misremembered the number, which is fine, and then Kent made an assumption. Based off of the erroneous memory. Exactly, and then that's where we got this idea. Now, it's very possible that there were Pac-Mans, even a lot of Pac-Mans that didn't sell, but it wasn't because of Pac-Man. It was because by the end of the year, there were a lot of games that weren't selling. Good games, bad games, all sorts of games. And that's really the symptom of the crash. To tar Pac-Man, E.T. you can blame a little bit because we know that they sold way fewer copies than they produced and mm -hmm. that it was just a very poorly received game. Pac-Man was a success. It's really unfair to blame Pac-Man for much of anything. Especially considering I have it in my basement. <laughs> it sold. It wasn't great. It had issues. But selling was not one of the issues it had. Seven million copies in the space of a year was just... That's good, especially for that time. Ridiculously good for that time. So yeah, you have those poster childs. Pac-Man's become a poster child. E.T. has become a poster child. Ray Kassar has been portrayed as the kind of clueless marketing-driven leader of Atari that really didn't understand what he was doing. These are kind of the great villains. And as with any good story, there is a grain of truth to it. But that's really not the main part of it. And to really understand what happened, you kind of have to go back and understand the way the industry developed in the first place. There was a massive video game boom that kind of started gathering steam in 1980 and then got really big in 81, even bigger in 82. And then it turned out to be a bubble that burst. The Atari VCS had been released in the late 1970s, and video games just kind of did okay in that late 1970s period. We sort of went over a little bit of this with like Media Genic and their buildup 
around the same time until the crash. Sure. In the late 70s, the market was kind of developing. It was developing very slowly, and there was a lot of competition from electronic handheld devices, games using LED and LCD displays, and it really was not gaining a lot of traction. Then you had a couple of things happen. The arcades really took off. Mm -hmm. Space Invaders was huge in 1979. Asteroids, which was released at the very end of the year, was huge in 1980. And it really developed the arcade market for video games to new heights. And that, of course, spurs adoption in the home because you play the latest game and spend all your quarters on it in the arcade. And then you have no more quarters and you're like, I still want to play this game. So then you want to get home systems, even though they were far inferior. Then, in early 1980, Atari releases Space Invaders on the VCS. And just like it was in the arcade, Space Invaders became the killer app that began to drive home video game sales. So home video game sales kind of explode in 1980 and into 1981. Atari's profits shoot to the moon. By 1982, they become like, their sales go from a few hundred million up to past one billion in sales. We talked about this even when we went into Japan, where we had the invader craze there. I mean, Space Invader was, a, for lack of any better term, a global phenomenon. It really was. There had really been nothing like it before that was just so intense. It seems like such a slow and plodding game today only because there were so many faster and more intricate games that followed it. But there was nothing where the computer fought back against you, shot at you. There were some target shooting games where targets would roll across the screen and you'd try to shoot at them, but they weren't shooting back at you and they weren't assaulting you. They weren't coming towards you line by line, and eventually they were going to get the bomb to screen and you lose. You would just shoot as much as you could in a time limit. So you can. Sort of like a shooting gallery. That's exactly what it was. And so, you know, you can get a little bit of an adrenaline rush by that, but it's completely different when you're having to dodge shots and you're having, oh my God, I have to hit all these things before they hit the bottom of the screen. And plus, you've got that four note dun 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 so there's just all of these elements that were so much more exciting than anything that had been experienced in an arcade before. I mean, pinball can be a kind of adrenaline-pumping game a little bit, too. But, of course, this pinball was different back then because solid-state stuff was just starting to come in. But you didn't have all the flashy sounds and flashy voice. And really, after the video game craze, pinball became kind of video-gamed itself. In mm -hmm. some ways. So even pinball was a very staid game back then compared to something that was going on in Space Invaders. It was just so in adrenaline inducing and so addictive. Plus, you had the high score feature on it. You didn't have a table quite yet. That came in in 79 with Starfire was the very first game to do it. And Asteroids was the game that popularized it. So it was only keeping the very high score. But that was something new, too, because you had that score staring you on the screen and you wanted to beat that score. I want to be better than my friend or that guy who plays this game. And that especially became true then when the score table was introduced and you could actually in enter your initials and it kept a list of the several top scores. So you had a very competitive culture grow up around arcade video games. If there's anything that we like as a race, it's competition. 
Exactly. And then the games became more colorful. They became more intricate. They just became something kind of unbelievable. It's you. It's something you almost can't capture today. The feeling of walking into an arcade circa 1981. Normally, these were pretty dimly lit because they really wanted to bring out the colors in the monitor. You had a lot of vector display games. So vector monitors are very glowy because mm-hmm. the tube is drawing lines directly on the steam. So the, the phosphorus is very bright and very glowy. So you have all of these kind of different, very glowy games in this kind of dimly lit space. You have the sound pounding in this very small space because mall arcades tend to be smaller. It's not like a Dave and Buster's you would go to today where it's well lit and there's just lots of space and whatnot. It's dark. It's cramped. It's almost hypnotic, the effect in that arcade. And you have old style casinos. If you have a really old casino in town, it's very similar to that where it's just dark, hypnotic. I know a lot of casinos today are a bit more brighter, but it's But yeah, it's the the same idea because it pulls you in and it addicts you. You have all of these crazy, very different games because there was a lot of variety. It's kind of the same thing that we discussed when we were discussing Apple II. Since the Apple II didn't have sprites, everyone had to figure out how to move pixels on the screen their own way, and so they did it very distinctly. At this time, you didn't have kits and you didn't have system hardware. You didn't have standardized hardware. You basically made a custom circuit board for each game you made, and then you might make one or two additional games using the same board with just some tweaks, but then you would go on to the next thing. Boards were not interchangeable. That's something that actually happened as a direct result of the arcade crash as part of the way that they made it economical again was by standardizing everything. So you had a lot of clones. You still had a lot of similar games, obviously. I mean, Space Invaders spawned a lot of fixed shooters where you're at the bottom of the screen and stuff's on the top. Pac-Man spawned a lot of maze games. But companies were doing things in very different ways. There were more unique control schemes. So every game was kind of its own little world and own little adventure and own little puzzle to figure out in a way that modern arcade games really aren't. So there's so many different things to see, so many different ways to do it, and so many high scores to try to beat. It became a national obsession. And naturally, when arcades became a natural national obsession, then people want that in the home. So once Space Invaders hit the home, that was huge. And that finally broke home video games through. And in 1981, they just couldn't make enough of these things. They could not make enough games to satisfy demand. There was a gold rush. Everybody wanted video games in their stores. Mm -hmm. And they were ordering you know, hundreds of thousands, uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies. And the companies like Atari and Mattel, which had gotten in at this point, could not keep up with demand. So nobody got as much product as they wanted. And everything that hit the market sold. No matter what it was. Exactly. It didn't have to be a great game. It could be a mediocre game. It didn't matter if you got, you know, half of the order you wanted or three quarters of the order you wanted, pretty much everything that reached the store shelves was selling because this was just the next huge thing. 
sales jumped up to uh, about $1.3 billion uh, hardware and software combined that year. And the vast majority of that was Atari. Atari owned the console market. About what percent do you think they owned it by? Well, they owned about 70% of the total market. That's hardware and software together. Hardware, their total was even a little bit higher than that because by 1981, you did have some of the first third parties coming in. So there was software being made by other companies for the Atari system. But in terms of systems, I mean, just as an example, and of course, these are all estimates uh, that analysts came up with. So they could be slightly incorrect, but it at least gives you the scale. Ballpark. Uh, According to one analyst estimates, there were about 3.1 million Atari 2600s sold in 1981. There were 720,000 Mattel and televisions sold. They were, you know, the second biggest. They had about 15% of the total market. That's hardware and software again. So Atari had about 70%. Mattel had about 15%. So that's 85% between them. That doesn't leave much for the rest. Magnavox was still in there. Magnavox had pioneered the very first home system, the Odyssey, back in 1972. They had, they still had a system out there, the Odyssey 2 or the Odyssey Squared, if you wanted to call it that, because they used a superscript to make it fancy. So the Odyssey 2 was out there. It sold about 600,000 in 1981. It probably sold between 1 and 2 million over its entire lifetime. It was released in 1978, just a year after the VCS. And then there were a couple of other hangers-on still on the market that weren't that important, and it's estimated they sold another 20,000. So there were about 4.6 million systems sold in 1981. 3.1 million of those were Atari VCS systems. Yeah, a good amount. They had the name recognition, and they had the hot licenses. The Mattel and Television was actually a far more capable system than the VCS, because it was released several years later. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was far more capable. It was a little more expensive, but not seriously so. Especially in that kind of climate where everyone wants anything or anything. And if they go into a store and they go, Hey, oh, merchant, give me many, one Atari. And the merchant goes, I don't got those. I got this other one. Uh, sure, give me, give me. <laughs> Sure, but it didn't sell in the the same numbers because Atari had the name recognition and Atari had all the hot arcade games. They did a very good job of locking up licenses, starting with Space Invaders. Before Space Invaders was licensed, licensing is something that just wasn't done because the the industry was new. It's just no one had thought of it yet, essentially. Obviously, Atari released versions of its own arcade games before Space Invaders, but Space Invaders was the first time that a console company went out and licensed somebody else's hit game. And they made sure to follow up on that. So kind of the biggest games in the 79 to 81 period. Pac-Man was the biggest of them. 96,000 cabinets sold in the arcades. Then Space Invaders was 65,000 in the U.S. We're just talking U.S. numbers with all of this. And Asteroids was about 70,000. Those were the big three in that time period. And then certainly in that era, those are the games you think of. Yep. And then probably I'd add Defender next, which was, you know, about 55,000 units. Those were kind of the huge ones. So Asteroids is an Atari game. So, of course, Atari releases that one. 
They license Space Invaders. They license Defender. They license Pac-Man. All of the biggest arcade games of that time period, the 79 to 81 period, are all exclusively in the home on an Atari system. Mattel tried to compensate by getting other kinds of licenses. For instance, all of their sports games were licensed with the official pro organization. So they had NFL football. They had Major League Baseball, that kind of thing. They tried to do that to draw people in. And I'm sure the name recognition helped a little bit, but it just wasn't enough to overcome that hit-driven nature of things where all the hit games were on the Atari system. Mattel had very good sports games, but they never had quite as good action games, the Twitch arcade games. And that really made the difference. So Atari was the market leader, period, by far. Atari definitely acted like a market leader. They felt that they could dictate the market. They felt to a degree that if they released it, people would buy it. If we program it, they will come. And that led to some rather poor choices later on down the line. They kept releasing good games as well, don't get me wrong, but they licensed the Rubik's Cube, for instance. The Rubik's Cube was huge in the early 80s. It's kind of hard to fathom today. There was a Saturday morning cartoon about the Rubik's Cube, and the less said about it, the better. But (laughs) So you can understand why, for instance, Atari's marketing people would want to get on the bandwagon and also license the Rubik's Cube, but all they did was basically recreate the Rubik's Cube on a 2600. So basically they said... And there's a limited return on playability with that. Well, but so here's what they did. They basically said, okay, a Rubik's Cube sells for $5. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a $40 Rubik's Cube. That so makes sense. Why wouldn't someone just go to the store and because it's not like it was like based on the cartoon or something where they made an action game where the Rubik's Cube was floating around shooting things or whatever. It was just a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> a virtualized Rubik's Cube you play. Right. So they turned a five dollar product into a forty dollar product. <laughs> Probably not gonna sell too well. No, but Atari at this point, there was a little bit of hubris. And kind of the biggest mistake they made, and one of the big causes of the crash, is that they continued to act like they were 100% of the marketplace, or maybe 90% of the marketplace, to be generous, when they no longer were. And so the first thing that was kind of devastating to the industry, which was also a good thing for the industry, but it was paradoxically both, was the rise of the third-party developer. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit in the context of Activision, but basically, before 1979, there was no such thing as a company that was solely in existence to make software for another company's video game console. The console maker also made all of the software for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, of course, that nobody just thought of it yet because it was a new industry. But the other thing was, this primitive hardware was very tricky to get the most out of. And usually, if you're going to code something that's going to work well, be impressive, you want to be the person that codes it because you understand how the hardware works. Right. Even though there was no technical thing stopping third parties, the VCS did not have a lockout chip like the later NES did. At the time, nobody even thought such a thing would be necessary. Mm-hmm. 
so it was so hard to code. It wasn't technical limitations. Now, obviously, the system itself was proprietary. You couldn't build your own system. That would be a no-no. But you could reverse engineer it, and it wasn't that complicated a system. It had a pretty simple, compared to later systems, 8-bit processor, the 6507, which was a pin-reduced version of the famous 6502. I mean, if you look at that thing's motherboard... There's not a lot of chips on there. There's not a lot of connections going back and forth. There's not a lot of transistors, resistors, or anything. You look at it, and I've actually shown Alex that I had to take uh, mine apart in order to clean and fix some switches. And you look at this thing. Why is there all this wasted space? Right. And so, you know, reverse engineering it was never going to be a big task. But you still needed someone with a little bit of knowledge. And so it's no surprise that the first third-party developer, Activision, was founded by four Atari programmers, four people that really knew the system very well, knew how to make games on it very well, and were just sick of not getting the compensation or recognition that they felt they deserved for their contributions to the company. The one famous thing that's often said, and we probably mentioned before, is they're making about $60 million for the company in 1978 with their software they released in the early days. And they're bringing in a standard engineer's salary of like $30,000. There's a disconnect there in their mind. So they go off and found their own company. And then a few more programmers do the same and, and that kind of snowballs. For the Activision people, one of the guys that left was also a hardware guru. He was designing software for Atari, but he had worked in chips at National Semiconductor before that, and that's David Crane. And so he got the system reverse engineered for him, and that went great. And that opened the door. It really took an expert to come in and start the trend. But once non-experts kind of woke up to the idea that, hey, we can make games for the system too, then everybody started coming in. And the people that followed weren't necessarily very good at it. So mm. there's, there's a talk about the decline in game quality in 1982 and 1983. Because you have all of these third parties coming in with programmers that, that didn't know what they were doing. And there were definitely some pretty wretched games released in that period. Games with poor collision detection and bad gameplay design and all sorts of horrible things going on. There's no doubt about that. Games like Lost Luggage and Skeet Shoot and the like just weren't that great because you had all sorts of people just jumping in now that didn't necessarily have technical skill. And a lot of times people say that it was those poor quality games that was also a part of the crash problem, but they really weren't. There's always been shovelware. I mean, the Wii had a notorious amount of shovelware on it. The NES had a infamous games released on it that were just terrible. It really wasn't the game quality. It was just that there were too much of them. Because if you have a dozen companies, each thinking that they're going to sell a million or two cartridges across all of their games, then you have a couple of bigger companies like Activision and Imagic, which was one of the other big ones that was founded by Exitari and Mattel personnel thinking that they'll sell maybe three to five million cartridges. And then you have Atari basically pretending that none of these other companies exist and that they are still supplying 100% of the software for the VCS. Yeah, that's going to be some pretty epic levels of saturation. Exactly. Every single game could have been the most brilliant game ever made in the history of mankind. 
And if you made 200% more product than people were willing or able to buy, you'd still have the exact same problem. We've already said that generally when they make a whole bunch of, even for hit games, people who already have the console, you only have about a 30 to 40% adoption rate. Right, exactly. And now imagine that 30 to 40% adoption rate, but then you have to take that and spread it across Atari, putting out 100% of what it thinks is the industry. You have the major third parties putting out as much as they can, and then you have shovelware developers putting out everything they can. I mean, that's frankly pandemic levels of saturation that just really ramped up there between... 79, 80, 81, 82, 83. And then it gets even worse because distributors and retailers also overorder because in 1981, nobody got what they wanted. So they learned their lesson. If I order twice as much as I want, then I'll get what I actually want. There's just one problem. By 1982, production had caught up with demand. So when they ordered 200% of what they actually wanted, they actually got 200% of what they wanted. And then they're all confused (laughs) and stuff. And really, it almost feels like a complete breakdown in communication of, okay, well, why didn't I get my stuff in 81? Well, we didn't have enough production, but next year we're going to have enough production. Oh, okay, well, I'll just order the same amount then. Instead of going, huh, we didn't get as much as we wanted last year. Eh, just double the order and we'll get it. Yeah, well, that's always a game. And it's always a game between uh, you know distributors and manufacturers. And one thing that Nintendo did that was very smart when they came in and that they did in response to what happened in the crash is they did make sure that nobody, regardless of the circumstances, ever got quite everything they wanted. They deliberately undercooked the market just a little bit because that was far preferable to overcooking the market. But in this period of time, you didn't have that happen. So Atari had had a very chaotic distribution system in 1981. And I think in part, I haven't talked to salespeople. Well, I guess I technically did, but I didn't ask him about it. (laughs) Um, Bad Alex, no cookie. But they had a very chaotic distribution network that I think kind of sprung up because video games grew so big so fast and it was hard to get as much product into the marketplace as everybody wanted that I think they just kind of entered a situation where they were giving out product to whoever they could to get it on whatever shelves they could. It wasn't very orderly. And so for 1982, they decided to streamline their distributor base. They consolidated, they got rid of a lot of distributors and focused on just a few, which was also probably part of the reason why overordering ended up happening. Because it's not just the production was catching up, it's that fewer people were ordering from Atari. So if Atari is distributing its stock amongst a smaller number of distributors, then each distributor can get more product, even if production levels stay the same. It's not so uh, distributed, and so when I place my order in with company A that's near me, they can better fulfill it. And the word in the press is is that they really pressured companies into ordering for the entire year at the beginning of the year. Mm. They wanted to know what everyone had because they were trying to bring order to what had been chaos. 
They wanted to know exactly how many people they were giving product to. They wanted to know exactly how much product they were giving to those people. They wanted to get this thing to be kind of a well-oiled machine, so to speak. But the problem is we're not talking about sophisticated distribution centers of the time, uh, kind that would come into existence in the late 80s, early 90s, when computer systems became more advanced and you could do a just-in-time inventory system relatively easily. You're still talking about the old days when a lot of this stuff is still being done by hand. So they're telling everyone to order up front. But if the market changes, if the market shifts, there's really no time to correct for that as the year goes on. So what happens is that, of course, there's way more product than the market can bear, in part because of distributors and retailers overordering, in part because there are just too many companies making product, in part because Atari is pretending that those other companies don't exist. Mm -hmm. You have a perfect storm where inventory is flooding the market. Because Atari has already locked itself in for the year, it's basically taken the position that we're producing all of these cartridges come hell or high water. We, you know, we've kind of already set our targets for 82, and that's what we're going to do. By the middle of the year, it's already becoming clear that the market is overheated, that there's just way too much inventory out there. This is the middle of 82, right? Mm-hmm. Retailers are starting to return product. As we've talked about, it feels like in every other episode, <laughs> when retailers return product, they don't eat that loss the manufacturer does. But Atari, because they wanted the stock price to keep running, because Atari at Warner stock, Atari is owned by Warner, Warner stock has been on a ridiculous run all through this video game thing because video games have been so huge. They want the stock to keep running. They want to be able to keep hitting their targets and hitting their quarters. So they don't process the returns right away. They just warehouse the material as long as it's still warehoused. We don't have to acknowledge its existence. Exactly. So stock starts backing up in warehouses. But Atari is telling everybody that everything is fine. And this is a problem. Because it's Re definitely an emperor has no clothes situation. Right. So the analysts believe everything is fine because they're looking at the figures. The figures have booked orders from retailers as sales to the consumer. They've been counting everything they send out as booked sales. When in fact they're not booked sales until that cartridge actually leaves the store and enters the hand of the consumer. Then it's book sales. But they've been booking sell-in as sales, and they've been hiding this stuff in warehouses. So analysts think everything's great because they're seeing these sales numbers from Atari, and they're just out of sight, like they're always out of sight. And so analysts think the market's okay, and because analysts think the market's okay, investors think the market's okay, and because investors think the market's okay, consumers think the market's okay. Nobody realizes that there's already a problem in 1982. So everyone's still manufacturing product, everyone's still shipping product, everyone's still buying product, and everyone is still returning product, and it's backing up, and it's backing up, and it's backing up. This is the situation until... December the 8th, 1982. Hmm. Near the end of the year. 
December 8th was the day that Atari would announce its quarterly results and have its investor conference call and brief the investors on the business and everything like that. Up through December 7th, 1982, Atari was still telling everybody that their business was going to be growing another 50% in 1982. Hmm. Because they are still hiding these returns. Now, is this a case of the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, or is this systemic, willful ignorance on Atari's part? So, a little from column A, a little from column B. Atari functions under a dual management structure. Mm -hmm. Warner doesn't have a single president or CEO overseeing the company. Steve Ross, the man who forged Warner Communications, is the chairman of the company, and he is the overall kind of grand poobah of the company. But beneath him is something that they call the office of the president. Rather than having a president, they have an office of the president, and this consists of about three or four people, each of which has responsibility for a specific business area of Warner. Because they've got the book publishing business, they've got the music business, they've got the movie business, they've got the video game business. This is an entertainment conglomerate. The man in charge of the video game business on the Warner end, who was in the office of the president, was Manny Gerard. Manny Gerard had been one of the best entertainment analysts on Wall Street in the mid-1970s. He was brought in by Steve Ross to be part of this Warner office of the president in order to grow Warner into new media business. He's the one that was the point man on the Atari purchase. And so he oversaw Atari on the Warner end. Now, Atari is a subsidiary of Warner. So Atari has its own president and CEO and chairman. Mm. And that man holding all of those titles is Ray Kassar, who we talked about before. Right. Ray Kassar and Manny Girard kind of have co-equal responsibility for Atari in a way. It's a dual management structure, sort of. It's very confusing. I've talked to a couple of the higher-level executives at Atari at the time, and they all said, basically, there was a lot of politics involved in that. It's like, if you told Ray something, you made sure to tell Manny the same thing, because you didn't want Manny finding out <laughs> through back channels what you told Ray. It's, they, they work well together. They're not antagonistic towards each other. But it leads to a somewhat complicated dual management structure at Atari that sometimes makes it hard to, to figure what's going on. It's almost like you have a president that's cloned and you have to tell the left side of the brain what the right side of the brain just heard from you. Right. And then there was a CFO, chief financial officer for Atari. That was Dennis Groth. He would be the main guy responsible for kind of doing the numbers thing. Then Atari has a domestic consumer business and an international consumer business. Michael Moon was in charge of the Atari Consumer Vision domestically, and Tony Brule was in charge of the international business. In early 1982, they decided, basically, according to what Michael Moon says, and I believe this to be true, basically because there's an idea that when you grow to a certain size, you have to add another layer of management. It was kind of a business 101 type thing. Atari's a $2 billion company now, so we're going to add another layer of management. So it used to be that Michael Moon and Tony Brule reported directly into Ray Kassar as the presidents of their respective divisions. 
in early 1982, they add in an overall president of consumer. Hmm. So domestic president Michael Moon and Tony Brule now report into a different person. And that person was Perry Odak. He was a marketing guy, but he had no idea about the video game industry. And according to Michael Moon, at least, who admittedly is going to be biased because this guy was placed over top of him. And when he didn't want another layer of management placed over him, says that basically Perry Odak wasn't interested in learning anything about the video game business either. So they put in a new layer of management and a complete video game novice at the exact moment that they're starting to have some of these shenanigans going on. And so Perry Odak wasn't really necessarily equipped to deal with what was going on with the business. And so it becomes a question, how much was Perry Odak successfully relaying to Ray Kassar? How much was Ray Kassar relaying properly to Manny Girard? Manny Girard has always claimed that he had no idea, that it was just a couple of days before the uh, conference call when Dennis Groff, the CFO, came to him and was like, we got a huge problem. And, you know, that's very possible. It's also very possible that Perry Odak was just not equipped to handle the situation because he was a new guy coming in at a crisis. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a breakdown of communication across what was becoming a pretty massive bureaucracy at the top of Atari. Atari was very top-heavy with VPs. There were a lot of them running around. I'm sure that some stuff was left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing. On the other hand, somebody knew what was going on. <laughs> uh, obviously, because someone taking this product back and decided, yeah, we're not going to tell the financial office, we're just going to keep that quiet. And it's very obvious who Warner decided to blame, because Perry Odak and Dennis Groth were very quickly no longer with the company soon after this announcement was made. Now, that doesn't mean it was necessarily their fault, because sometimes the guy that takes the fall and the guy who's really responsible are two very different people. Mm-hmm. But that gives some indication of where the problems may have been. So Manny Gerard is told a couple of days before this conference call that Atari is not going to grow 50%. Atari is going to grow 15%. If that. No, 15%. It 15. grew. It still grew. Okay. But it's not about how much you make or don't make on Wall Street. It's about how close you are to your forecasts because you gather confidence in the marketplace. The market doesn't like change. The market likes predictability. The market is just as likely to go down when something good happens that's unexpected as when something bad ha happens that's unexpected because the market responds poorly to change. Any economists listening to me right now are probably rolling their eyes in disgust, but for our purposes, we'll say that's true. <laughs> Sorry, economist. Just because a company loses money one quarter, obviously if a company keeps losing money forever and ever, that's bad. But just because a company loses money one quarter doesn't necessarily mean that Wall Street's going to be unhappy with that company if they got a heads up that the company was going to lose money. Because all they have to go on are the forecasts of how well these companies are going to do. And if you become a company with a reputation of hitting your targets, people can trust what you say and can know if you say this is going to happen, then it's really going to happen. And they can feel safe investing with you. So, you know, it might not sound like a big deal to you or I saying, okay, so they, they still grew, they just didn't grow as much. So, well, that was a massive missing of their target. They missed their earnings target by 35%. Yeah. So that shows that something is horribly wrong at Atari. And that is the signal to start selling video game stocks. Because if something is horribly wrong at Atari, and Atari is the leader of the industry, panic, then there's panic, something wrong everywhere. Panic. 
So that pretty much destroys the market's faith in the video game industry. Imagic was scheduled to go public to have an IPO two days later on December 10th. That didn't happen. No one was going to buy into a new video game stock at that point because it became very clear that the video game industry was hiding some serious skeletons in the closet. So December 8th, 1982 is kind of the moment that you could consider to be the start of the crash. That's when the fire started. Exactly. Or at least it's not when the fire started, but that's that's when somebody noticed that the fire was burning. <laughs> that's when someone noticed a smoke coming out of the roof. Exactly. Because the fire had actually been burning for some time at that point, going back to earlier in the year when, when the market was becoming overheated. Okay. The fire started in spring of 1982, and the smoke was noticed in December of 1982. Right. So at this point, it's very clear that there is a return problem, that there's too much inventory in the channels, and it's coming back to the manufacturers. There just isn't enough money to handle all of these returns. First of all, the small companies, there are a lot of small companies that were kind of get-rich-quick, me-too bandwagon companies, oftentimes not very well financed, trying to get into the market. Those companies could not take back software. They had no money to give back to the retailers that demanded returns. And those are mostly like the shovelware ones we discussed earlier. Exactly. Those companies all go out of business. So the retailers have no place to return that product. So the retailers, at this point, have to sell it. They can't sell it at $35 or $40. There's too much product. So that means it's time to discount. I like discount. I like sales. I'm a consumer. That's right. So all of these games that they can't return end up in great big bins at the front of the store, marked down to as low as $5, $4, $3. A buck. Even in some cases, a buck, yes. Well, you can't sell any kind of quality product in that environment. The bigger companies held on, but they also found it hard to continue. Atari set aside money for returns, and then it didn't end up being enough, and so they had to set aside more money for returns. And, you know, there's just product coming back in droves, and it's starting to sink these bigger companies, too. So Atari and Mattel are having to write down a lot of product. And when you write down product, you take losses and you take big losses. Atari in the early 1983 loses over $500 million. Mm. It's a company that was making close to you know, a billion in profit just like two years ago. Now it's losing $500 million. And that's not on a whole year. They lost $536 in like one quarter. $536 million in one quarter? Mm-hmm. Because they're having to mark down all of this inventory. They have too much of it. There's just no way forward to earn that money back in the marketplace. The only way to earn that money back is to sell more product, to come out with new product that people are actually interested in buying. Well, the channels are still overstuffed because of those bargain basement games. They can't get those products out of retail. So, and we talked about this in an earlier episode too. So, in order to make the profit you need to make, you need to sell your game for like 30 to 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. If you put a game on the shelf, no matter how good, that costs 30 to 40 bucks and have it compete with games, some atrocious, but some still actually kind of good, selling for three bucks each, 
your $40 game's not going to sell because you don't have a sophisticated, savvy consumer. It's a children's market, the home console market, and it's parents buying games for their children. It's not a savvy market. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I heard this game's really terrible and this game's really great, so I better get little Johnny the, the $40 game. They're just like, ah, eh, whatever. It's just some cheap toy he'll be tired of in two months anyway. So I'm going to get four games for $3 each rather than one game for $40. And then, you know, I look good because I gave little Johnny so much stuff. And, okay, maybe a couple of them weren't that great. But, I mean, was little Johnny going to be playing the game, you know, three months from now anyway? Probably not. So everybody's happy, except for the uh, manufacturer that is trying to sell new games. And we went over a little bit of this with uh, Britain, with the, their software side. They had the lower-end rack where they couldn't get the newer, higher-end games out because the low-priced racks in the front were going, eh, only a few pounds. Right. But, of course, in that case, this was a deliberate creation of a budget market, which meant there was an attempt to create quality software, as quality software as they could, within that price range. This was a completely accidental budget market that nobody wanted. And, of course, it's a cartridge market, not a cassette tape market. Cartridges are expensive cassettes relative to cassettes. are less expensive. They're not hugely expensive, but they're expensive relative to cassettes. By this point, you know, an 8K cartridge, because uh, a lot of them were 8K by this point using bank switching. I don't know the exact figures, but an 8K cartridge was probably cost around $3, 3 or $4 to make. So basically, when the software is being discounted, that stuff's basically being sold at cost. You're not making any profit. And that doesn't take into account development costs, which are relatively small in those days, but you still have development costs. And it doesn't take into account marketing costs because you have to spend like a dollar per cartridge or whatever just to pull a random number uh, in order to market games. So if you're basically just breaking even on the manufacturing. Not to mention distribution. It takes gas right. in order to get it to the store. And remember that, you know, you double at each stage. So, you know, the retailer takes about 50%. You know, the manufacturer sells at a certain price. Normally, the manufacturer doubles his cost to sell into retailers. In the video game market, it was different because they followed... uh market of really making ridiculous margins on the software. So they actually more than than doubled to get their profit. They were making huge profits. But, you know, you double there and then the retailer doubles, you know, before they put it on the shelf to get their money. So if you're just about breaking even on a budget game on your manufacturing costs, if the costs are about the same, you're only maybe taking half of that as the, uh, you know, manufacturer. And in fact, on this bargain stuff, you're probably not even taking any of it because usually it's going to the bargain bin after the retail, the manufacturers refuse to take it back. So at that point, the retailer is, is taking everything. So there's, there's just no money being made on these games and nobody can sell a $40 game anymore. And that's what kills the rest of the industry. The shovelware guys all fall real quick. The rest of the industry begins to fall apart because they can't make new product. A magic just disintegrates. They try to transition into home computers and they can't. Parker Brothers, the toy company, which had become a major developer of third-party software, they're hemorrhaging money. They get the heck out and it wounds them very greatly. Milton Bradley, another toy company, had just started creating its own console called the Vectrex, the only vector graphics console. They 
get blown apart so badly that Hasbro ends up buying him. Milton Bradley essentially is destroyed by the video games. Mattel is almost completely obliterated. Mattel would have gone out of business. It would have gone bankrupt. But Michael Milliken, the so-called junk bond king, came in and basically saved the company. You know, he said, you know, Barbie shouldn't go bankrupt. And he came in and saved them. If it hadn't been for Michael Milliken, Mattel would have been gone. One of the largest toy companies in the country just completely laid low by the video game industry. It's uh, kind of amazing to think of just how many different companies got brought into this bubble and going, hey, I want in on this too. And then just because of the oversaturation that occurred and because things weren't communicated right, it lays everyone low. Exactly. Activision somehow manages to go public, which we talked about. And so Activision survives, though greatly wounded. Atari ends up, the consumer division ends up being sold in the middle of 1984 to Jack Trammell, who then incorporates as Atari Corporation, which is actually a different company. But Atari is mortally wounded. They try to come back from it. Ray Kassar gets fired in the middle of 1983. And we talked a little bit about how they went out and got James Morgan from the tobacco industry, of all things. He was known as a pretty good marketer, but the tobacco industry is not a fast-changing industry. Well, it is once all the lawsuits start and they start losing all their customers. But Mm -hmm. historically speaking, it's not a fast-changing industry. And it was a mistake to bring in a person at that point that was not used to moving quickly because he really dragged his heels He had some ideas on how to reform the company and streamline the company and refocus the company to try to turn it around, but he was really moving way too slowly and they really lost their window and Atari ended up being sold because Warner's stock had taken such a nosedive from all of this that Rupert Murdoch of News Corp fame attempted a hostile takeover of the company. And so Warner was literally fighting for its life and it just, it could not wait for Atari to turn itself around. It was an albatross that could have sunk the entirety of Warner Communications. Mm. And this is where we will end with part one of the great video game crash. Next time, we will delve more into some of the specifics of the industry and how there were missteps with what these companies did transitioning to newer platforms and a lot of the mistakes, trials, and tribulations that went on further. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.